This presentation is from Design Research 2020, Day 2. Our next presenters are Fiona and Cassia from Make Studios. They're going to be talking um, a little bit for us about how we can expand our toolkit and how we can expand the impact of human-centered design with a look at and an understanding of um, behavioral design. So thank you both for joining us, and I'll hand over to you. Thank you, and welcome. Thank you, thank you. Let me just share our screen. All right. Wonderful, Here we go. perfect. All right, <laughs> over to you. Um, before we begin, uh, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, wherever you might be dialing in from today. Uh, so our talk today is about our journey extending the power of human-centered design through behavioral design. But you might be wondering who we are. Uh, my name is Kasia, and I'm a service design lead at Make Studios. And Make is a design-led strategic consultancy. Yeah, and I'm Fiona. I also work at Make. Um, and as well as that, I work at the Social Enterprise Street, and I'm a certified Tiny Habits behavioral design coach. Cool. So today uh, really has two main parts. Uh, we'll start by explaining why we think human-centered design and behavioral design are a power combo. Uh, we will cover a little bit of theory uh, just to make sure we're all on the same page and uh, to make sure that the methods and the models that we're talking about um, are all clear. Um, but just acknowledging that some of you uh, might already be familiar with them. And then the second part of our talk will be about our journey. We'll be sharing a few examples of projects that we've done we, where we have merged those approaches and we're going to share our learnings with you. So behavioral design and human-centered design are very powerful methods on their own, um, but it's when you put them together we found is when the magic happens. So you can think of these as two schools of thought. So human-centered design is excellent for understanding experiences um, from a holistic point of view um, and it helps us design useful um, usable and engaging experiences and things uh, whereas behavioral design zooms in on key decision-making points within those experiences and it's good for designing those individual moments of truth is what we like to call them and we found that bringing them together is how you can create lasting change. So for, uh, for those of you who practice as designers, you might find that sometimes you do design something that is useful, it's usable, it's engaging, but it still sometimes doesn't work because um, if our users don't act in a way that's helpful to them consistently, consistently it still might not work. Or if they act, um, if they say they act differently and then they act differently, that's, that also doesn't work. There is like a say and do gap that we find. And it's normal. It's very, it's very difficult to imagine how we will be acting in the future. So this is where we see behavioral design come in, where we can use interventions to help people do what they already want to do. So um, before we jump into our case studies, we thought it would be worth just sharing a little bit of theory um, so that we can explain what we're talking about when we come to the case studies. So first of all, um, if you think about human-centered design, as most of you will know, human-centered design is about putting the user at the center of any solutions that we, des we design. We start to think about their needs and goals and, and motivations and so forth. Um, and we often use structured approaches like the double diamond, 
where we use a bunch of research and um, prototyping, et cetera, to go out and think divergently and then come in and think convergently at different times. We also like to put a lens on things to make sure that whatever we're designing is desirable, feasible and viable. And on top of that, we often use you know, the heuristics or principles that are underpin really good design. And those in themselves um, and doing all of that, as we know, is likely to make mean that you're actually developing and creating something that is going to be better than if you don't do those things by far. Um, but then we also want to share with you the behavioural design side of things. And we, what we wanted to do is actually break it up into two parts because we've actually applied two different kinds of behavioural design in our case studies. The first one is about nudges. It's about understanding how you can put nudges into different environments. And um, the second one is about tiny habits, which is where it's about helping people to make their own changes. And both are great for designing, but they do different things um, in specific moments of truth. So first of all, um, many of you may have seen this diagram, which is a bit mind blowing really, but um, it basically shows that there's more than 200 cognitive biases that are also influenced um, by a, where a person is, their context, um, social factors and cognitive factors. And they're basically ways that our brain makes shortcuts into doing things um, that if we actually processed every bit of information we have around us, we actually wouldn't get anything done. Um, and to put that into perspective, we process about 11 million bits of information unconsciously every second, but none of us would know, we only ever know at 42 bits of information at the most. So it's really important that we don't spend our time trying to make sense of the world when there's so much going on. So we often do things like um, we start to think about, can we actually make some assumptions? Um, you know, can we easily remember things based on things that are like things that we already know, that kind of thing. And in some ways that's really evolutionary, really, really helpful because um, it's better to eat lunch than be lunch. So if you saw something furry, that it's, teeth, it's got burying its teeth and it's growling, then it's better to probably either hightail it or fight than sit around and start to process if that is actually something to be afraid of. So um, from an evolutionary perspective, these behavioural um, and co cognitive biases are really, really valuable. On the other hand, sometimes these biases can actually be unhelpful and they can actually cause things to go in a way we wouldn't ideally like. So for example, if you were a prisoner uh, and you're about to ask for parole, you probably would want to do it, um, have your hearing as early in the day as possible um, because there was one study that showed the idea of ego depletion where judges are less likely to grant parole the closer you get to lunchtime. And they, um, the idea is that people when they're hungry and fatigued are likely to make less rational or logical decisions. Um, secondly, a lot of people zooming in here today have probably encountered the idea of unconscious bias. But um, just to sort of recap on that, um, and there's a lot of research that shows, for example, if you were applying for a management role, um, that the people recruiting might make a different decision if they saw the name and they would look at the gender, the gender and also the cultural background of the person by the name. So people are more likely to recruit in managerial roles, um, females, and also people that might be more culturally similar to themselves. And this is not something that people consciously do. And in fact, a lot of people who um, are subject to this bias would actually say black and blue, that they're very for equality, et cetera. But it's just something that's ingrained in our brains. Um, another bias that you could say it's helpful or you could say it's unhelpful is the IKEA effect. 
that people actually place more value on things that they actually assemble themselves. So um, that could be nice when you've got something that means a lot to you, but it could actually be really unhelpful if you end up with a house full of junk that you can't bear to part with. Um, so I guess we wanted to also just share with you some um, biases and how they've been used in nudging behaviour in the real world. Um, the first one is about organ donation. So um, countries that opt out um, of um, organ donation have a much higher rate of organ donation than countries where you need to opt in. So this is just a reframing bias where people, um, you know, they call it default bias. People go with the default um, that's in place. Um, another area is you can actually potentially um, help people to make good decisions when it comes to looking at whether or not you should actually um, recommend an operation. So there was a study that showed that oncologists were 34% more likely to opt for a surgical or recommend a surgical um, operation um, if it was presented as the survival rate rather than the mortality rate. So it might be that it's 98% of people survive and 2% of people do not survive they're more likely to um, recommend that. That can also um, raise some ethical issues as well, of course. So that's something that we would always say um, we need to bear in mind whenever we're using behavioural design. Um, and finally, another example of where nudges can work is um, the idea of if you put things in different places um, where people are more likely to look. So Google did a study where they placed water bottles at eye level, um, replacing um, soft drink or soda bottles, and they found that they had a 47% increase in people doing a healthy thing and drinking water. I won't make any comment about the environmental implications of that, but it was good that they were able to help people to stay hydrated. Um, so that's the first kind of behavioural design. The second is looking at tiny habits, and some people might have seen that there's um, actually a new book around about tiny habits at the moment um, from the Stanford um, scientist, um, behavioural scientist BJ Fogg. Um, and the idea behind um, tiny habits can really be represented in this graph that's on the, on, the ta on the slide here. So the idea is if you have a look, three things need to happen to actually make a behaviour happen. And the three things are there needs to be motivation. So somebody needs to have a reason to do something. Um, the second thing is they need to be able to have the ability to do it. So if you look at the graph here, first of all, um, ability is, um, sorry, motivation. Um, if motivation is high, then it, you can actually have something that's very hard to do and people will potentially still do, still do it. Um, but, and then on the other hand, if, if, with the ability, if something is very easy to do, people um, and your ability is high, people are also likely to do it. But if you can see the activation threshold line, the idea is that you can sort of trade off motivation and ability. And um, depending on how much motivation or ability somebody has at a particular moment, that actually helps to define whether or not people can actually do something. Um, and with tiny habits, the idea is you try and pick something in the bottom right area there of that graph so that it's actually really, really easy to do. And then your motivation doesn't have to be particularly hard at all. Um, and just to illustrate the idea of motivation, ability and ability at play, um, if you can imagine making a, um, your phone rings and you decide not to answer it. So the phone ringing is the trigger or prompt. Um, and then if your reason for not answering it is that you're in the shower or in a meeting, then that, that actually illustrates ability. If on the other hand, you didn't answer the phone because you didn't really feel like talking to that person or you were tired, then that's all related to motivation. So putting that all into practice, um, 
there's actually a little approach or a method of routine that you can use to actually help these um, habits stick really quickly. And it's all represented by the A, Bs and Cs of things. So the A is finding an anchor moment or finding a routine that you already do. In this little recipe card we've got here, that could be putting on my pajamas. And supposing the behavior I wanted to do is to floss my teeth every day, I might just break it down to a tiny thing that's super easy to do, which would be to floss one tooth. And so after I put on my pajamas, I will floss just one tooth. Um, and then the final bit is, uh, and the C part of it is to celebrate. And that could be just as simple as smiling in the mirror um, to yourself or just thinking good job to yourself. And the idea behind the celebration is it actually helps to hack your habit. And by that, it actually creates a, by doing those little celebrations, you actually have a, it, it elicits a bit of a positive emotion, which is known as shine. And when that happens, routinely, you start to associate that emotion with the actual new habit. And so after a very short amount of time, you can actually make a habit, a small habit stick. And, you know, you hear people talking about it takes 21 days for a habit to stick or longer. Um, in this case, with these tiny habits, you can actually make something stick in a few days if you, if you sort of do it this way and it's a really small thing. And then you can potentially build other things on top of those tiny habits as well um, and watch the ripple effect happen. So that's it from the theory side of things. That's all over now. I'll <laughs> hand over to Kasha to just talk about our first case study. Yeah. Um, so now that we're done with housekeeping, um, we would love to take you through a series of projects that we've done where we have merged those, those approaches um, and we can we, we are thinking about it as a bit of a scale um, that you can see on the screen. So the more you go to the right on the scale, the more married and integrated the two approaches are. And we have pulled out one project example for each of those steps on, on this line. So we would love to start with inspiration. So this is a project that we did with um, City of Melbourne. And uh, what do we mean by inspiration is that it was a human-centered design project. Uh, but we took inspiration from a behavioral design uh, model or method um, during that project to spark some new thinking. So just a little bit of context about the project so, um, so everyone's on the same page here. Um, so this project focused on people who are facing blockers when it comes to um, generating and using renewable energy. And that can be for many different reasons. Uh, maybe you don't, you're a business that doesn't own the building that you're in. Or maybe you're an apartment dweller and you just don't have a roof, so you can't put a solar panel on it. Um, so the solution that we were testing through this project um, was a little bit like a community garden. I think it's a nice metaphor to help understand how that would work. There are people out there that would want to um, potentially do some gardening, but they don't have a garden. So that's um, what community gardens are for. You can still practice gardening, uh, but just accessing it um, off your property. So that's the idea with community energy. How can we um, give people access to investing in and using and contributing to renewable energy without necessarily having to have the hardware in their house? So the aim of the project was, let's identify the best model. How could this work? Um, understanding the appetite for it. Um, and also just understanding what would need to be true from a resident and a business perspective for it to be successful. So the first thing that we did, um, our, our first round of research in this project was a little bit more exploratory. We wanted to understand um, people's approaches to renewable energy, understand uh, their, um, their context, their life, um, how a model like this could potentially fit into their lives. And when it was time for us to synthesize all of this information and then ideate on potential models to test, 
uh, we decided to use cognitive biases for inspiration. So we looked at our walls of synthesis and at the themes that we identified. Um, we held an ideation session with our team and we had this card deck in the middle um, that we've created. And it's a simple card deck. It's um, on one side, you have a name of a, of a cognitive bias and on the other side, you have a quick explanation. And what this does is you don't have to, you know, be an expert and know all of these hundreds of biases that Fiona mentioned exist by heart. Um, they're just there in front of you, um, just as prompts. And we would take one at a time and see uh, whether they make sense, whether they spark any new um, ideas for us. Uh, and so, for example, um, we might pull out a card that says social proof. So that makes me think, okay, um, within this community en energy model, how do I help um, people, how do I help promote successful case studies of this happening in other places? And would that, based on our findings, um, help people get on board with this? Or if you pick uh, relativity, which is the card on the screen, people evaluate options by comparing um, uh, them to what else is around. With this model, how can we help people understand how it would change their situation um, that they're in today? So that was a, a nice ideation kind of prompt activity that we've done. Another model that we used during this project for inspiration was the BMAP model that Fiona explained earlier, so the ability to motivation model. So what we've done there is we looked at all of our research participants and we started clustering them um, kind of from a persona point of, point of view, but along this scale, uh, along their ability to motivation ratio, um, to start seeing whether um, specific groups of people are coming through and really to help us identify what, what would be the right target groups, um, what would be the kinds, kinds of people we should be looking into uh, with this model. And what we arrived at is there's lots of different groups here. But it's really, it's three main types of groups of people. So on one hand, we identified people who have very low ability to get, get involved with a community energy project and very low motivation. Maybe they simply don't think it's an important thing to do. Um, and this gives us an understanding, okay, these types of people are probably not the best people to target, especially at the beginning of an initi initiative like this. Um, on the other hand, we have the people in the middle. So these people that sit closer to the action line and these are the groups that would need to be nudged to in order to get involved in something like a community energy um, um, a solution. So for example, market-driven businesses, um, those kinds of businesses, all they need to understand is how is this going to make me look good from a brand perspective if I get involved? Because I'm kind of motivated and I have the ability, but you just need to tell me how this, um, how this would work for my business. Um, and then the third group are the people of the very, um, uh, very, 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 very right. They have the ability and they have the motivation. They are ready to roll. So these are probably the types of people um, that are really good to start with with an initiative like this. Um, you know, th th these are our early adopters in a sense. Yeah. So, so now we'd like to take you. That thanks, thanks, Kasha. That was our inspiration case study. Now we'd like to talk to you a bit about um, a case study where we started to actually go into the field and test some nudges. Um, we were actually working with an academic institution um, and the academic institution wanted us to consider how might we help improve student access and experience of student services. So those would be services such as enrolment, um, it could be library services, it could be IT and it could be um, admin services. And uh, in the current state, when we started that project, um, the university had um, lots of different 
centres of excellence, if you like, areas where you could go and get specialised support, but it would mean that students would have to go to multiple places around the campus. So the idea was, could we look at how we could actually create a better experience for students? So um, we started off with a standard um, idea of using human-centred design and the good old double diamond approach, where we did a lot of um, looking at, um, you know, um, hypothesising, going out and doing some research and um, understanding what the user needs were like and also what was feasible and viable as well. And um, we then looked in the second diamond where we started to think about the prototypes and what we could design. We added some nudges to see if we could actually help to move things along a bit in the designs. So what was really interesting, um, and as I mentioned, we did the research and, and we looked at different scenarios and user journeys and so forth. One of the things that emerged was it was really, really feasible to actually put different place, different services in the different sites. And it was something that we felt would actually be very, it would be useful and usable for um, students. But the engaging part or the bit about getting people to actually make the changes, which Karsha mentioned before about the idea that, you know, when you have that moment of truth, can you actually nudge people to make a, make a or do something that they would find helpful? We actually found there was a bit of cognitive dissonance. People didn't necessarily see that they would actually want to be, be going to the library, for example, to be um, performing some thing, IT things. And so we had to look at how could we actually potentially, you know, have a go at designing things that we knew would be helpful for people if they were willing to give it a go. Or when I say new, maybe we, we strongly hypothesised they would find it very, very useful if they only gave it a go. So we wanted to add those little nudges in. So we ran two experiments um, where we, in two different locations, we created little pop-up shops if, or kiosks, if you like. And we did, we just created the normal service that you would imagine um, where people could actually do things at multiple locations. And we tested that as a baseline. Then we added some nudges in where we actually um, played around with a few different ideas. So social proof, the idea that people like to do things like themselves. Um, so we put up a sign that we updated during the day to let people know how many other people like them had actually used um, a service that they wouldn't normally in a particular location. Um, then we also looked at default bias, um, where we actually put some signs up to say to people um, that, look, you're already here. If you've got any of these issues, um, you know, you could do it here or you could actually, you know, walk eight minutes away. Um, so the idea was sort of framing it to people. So hopefully if they had an issue um, when they were there, they could actually start to think about that being their default location. And we also looked at, at um, reduction as well, where we sort of looked at actually providing, you know, making sure that we provided um, really clear and obvious choices within a particular environment so that people weren't overwhelmed with the number of services. Even if they had a broad number, we didn't publicise everything. We just went with a few. Um, so those were some of the things that we tested and um, we were able to do it over multiple days, which was great. And we found that each of those nudges, um, and as well as placement of where where the kiosk was and, and how it was placed, we also looked at the heat mapping and, and so forth. Um, and what we found is we tried, we used trial and error to work out how the nudges worked. Um, and going back to this idea that if, because you've got so many influences going on around you, it's actually really, really important to test in situ rather than um, you know hypothesizing because there could be factors you're not aware of going on. Anyway, we did all of that and we found that each of the nudges that we looked at did help. Um, what we would have ideally liked though is to actually have done it for a bit longer so we could have some statistically significant figures, um, which we were looking at doing moving forward um, with other projects. 
but we thought it was great that we were actually able to test this in a way that did help to give us some evidence that what we were doing was making a positive impact. So our um, third example is the combo example. So actually merging human-centered design and behavioral design in a project throughout. Um, and that was with an international bank. So we did this project offshore uh, where human-centered design isn't as mature as a practice as it is here in, in Australia. But there is a lot of interest in and openness in trying behavioral design. Um, a lot of people there have read the book Nudge, um, which is a great book that we recommend. Um, and um, there is an appeal to nudges because they are quite con concrete and measurable. So um, this is why we um, ran a combined human-centered design and behavioral design approach. And so the goal of the project was to en enhance the wealth journey for customers who are planning for retirement. So what this bank has identified is that people tend to leave planning for retirement um, until quite late. And we're looking into how, how might we encourage people to plan for retirement earlier so that they're ready? Um, how might we make it a little bit easier and less overwhelming um, and potentially even gamify it? So uh, you can't read the detail of this, but um, it gives you an idea. So one of the main outcomes of this project was a customer journey map uh, that was showing uh, the customer's journey planning for retirement. Um, but what we did is we mapped cognitive biases on it. So the mountains, the blue mountains that you see here, are the moments that we identified where people got stuck in the journey for one reason or another. Uh, and those, uh, and we called those um, behavioral bar barriers. And then we used those to um, identify opportunities. Okay, so if this cognitive bias is at play, um, what other cognitive bias could help people get unstuck? And these are the balloons that you see above the mountains. Um, how can we help people avoid this mountain? And this, uh, they became um, uh, sources of inspiration for potential solutions um, that are uh, mapped below. So I'm just going to zoom in on an example. Um, so it, at this moment in the journey, when customers have an option to explore their options for their retirement in branch, two things happen. Some um, customers simply don't do it and postpone it, which is uh, one of the key problems identified in the project. And this is uh, what we call procrastination bias, when you postpone something important um, and you just try not to think about it. And other people who did choose to do that, they would come into the branch and they would look at the options and there were so many options in front of them that they couldn't make a decision. Uh, and that cognitive bias is called decision paralysis. So what we've done is we looked at those two cognitive biases at play at this moment in the, in the journey. And we ask ourselves, okay, are there cognitive biases that we could use to create nudges to help people overcome these? Um, so with simulation, as the simulation heuristic, for example, um, is helping people simulate probabilities and helping people play around with uh, their potential retirement models. Um, with decision paralysis, the other, on the other side of that, you have reduction. So how might we reduce the amount of choice presented by um, providing more personalized recommendations? Or um, with social proof, again, uh, when people are faced with a lot of decisions, they might find it easier to make a decision if they can see what people like them are doing for their retirement. Um, and this is something that's commonly used in superannuation funds when you can see when uh, people in your demographic group, what are they doing? And that might help you potentially make a decision. Um, so um, 
with this project, our client has started using this map and all the ideas that we I developed together based on those cognitive biases as a guide in progressively implementing those nudges to nudge people towards the helpful behavior. Mm. Um, so now we're up to our last um, case study, which is actually broken up into two parts. But basically what we wanted to do is share with you uh, how we worked at the Social Enterprise Street um, in using Street as a living lab so we could actually start to track um, the changes that we were making as we went um, in different, different kinds of interventions. So first of all, um, before I go into the detail of that, I just wanted to share a little bit about what Street is for those who don't, might not know. So Street is a social enterprise that helps young people who are at risk of being homeless by providing them with life and hospitality skills and more recently horticultural skills. Um, so they can get exposure to working at our different sites as well as getting some formal training. So um, to support that, we have nine cafes. Um, some of them are open to the public and we have a big one, um, big cafe that you can see in the bottom right corner of the slide there. We have some that are within corporate buildings. We also have a bakery, a roastery and a catering arm. And we have a lovely garden at our main flagship site um, where we do a lot of horticultural work. So um, that's where we, we um, that's how we actually work in general. Um, but the other thing to bear in mind with Street is that we believe not only should we be increasing our social impact footprint, but we should be looking at how we can best lighten our environmental footprint, especially as hospitality is one of the most wasteful industries that there is. Um, so we think it's really important we think about that. So over the last couple of years, we've developed a planet plan um, where we've got a bunch of initiatives that we have been looking at um, so that we can actually not only reduce our environmental footprint, but think about ways that we could even potentially go a step further and be regenerative. Um, and so what we've been doing is we've been using Street pretty much as a living lab um, over that time, over the last few years, and, and we continue to do so. And what's great is because we have so many outlets, we're able to actually make small tweaks in one location and see whether or not it makes a difference. And um, yeah, so we have the opportunity to isolate variables and actually get a little bit more geeky and scientific about doing things, which is great. Um, so uh, I guess the other thing just to bear in mind that we're lucky because human-centered design is really embedded in hospitality. So as, as um, the infamous um, Gordon Ramsay would say, that you know, if you're creating a steak um, dinner, then it's not just doesn't matter how amazing the steak is. If it's served on a cold plate, it's crap. Um, if you use you serve it with a dull knife, it's crap. Um, if it isn't piping hot, it's crap. If the chair's uncomfortable, it's crap. Um, the idea being that you know, hospitality industry has to really think about those minute um, experience touch points um, from the get go. So we're actually starting from a place of you know a high level of human centered design already embedded. And it provides a really good environment for us to start to test out behavioural design elements on top of um, those human-centred design elements. Um, so we wanted to talk about two different things that we've done as part of that living laboratory. So the first one is September. So with, you, with September, what we wanted to do is create a campaign last year during September um, that was looking at reducing single-use cups, coffee cups, and increasing reusable coffee cups. So we started off um, thinking about it from a human-centered design perspective, where we actually um, got people in, uh, the executive um, MBA team at RMIT got involved in helping us um, from a human-centered design perspective, um, thinking about some research, understanding what barriers there might be in people using reusable cups, et cetera, 
Um, and we also ran what we called a design relay, which is really like a design sprint, but with different volunteers over different days. And we created different elements of um, a, a September campaign. And that included also reducing barriers from a human-centered design perspective, such as introducing a trial cup loan scheme with Returner. Um, we also introduced um, Tiny Habits. We created a zine, which is something like this in, in this shape that customers could get, um, where they could actually create their own recipes um, in terms of in helping them remember to bring their cups. So it might be at home in the morning to after I pick up my keys, I will remember my keep cup and I'll celebrate by saying, yay, I did it or whatever it might be. Um, we also looked at nudges. So some of the nudges were posters and information at sites. It was also scripts for, for staff to use um, to talk about the, the, the things that we were trying to achieve. Um, but we also looked at social media and gamification. Um, and the gamification element of nudging um, came, we, what we did is we actually started to look at how we were going across our different sites and introducing an element of competition. So each week we actually posted how we were going at the different sites and it, it created a bit of friendly rivalry which was good and um out of all of that so what did what happened so we had a goal of 33 percent we wanted to have 33 percent of reusable cups across our sites and um that was up from about 19 percent um and that's and compared to the general population um it's a it was back last year about 10 percent um, we actually achieved our 33% goal, which was great, and it's been sustained over time. We've actually been able to keep some of those nudges and um, human-centered design principles in place beyond September, and we're finding that there are two sites where we're consistently between 44 and 52% um, reusable cups, which is great. And um, over all of our sites, we're actually 58%, but that's I didn't want to include those figures because it would be cheating a little bit given that um, our corporate sites have a closed-loop system. But still, it's worth mentioning that um, it's you know these all, these things all add up to help create a cumulative benefit. Um, so then the next um, thing that we wanted to talk about, and the last thing that we wanted to talk about, was um, helping people to nudging people to eat more plant-rich meals. And the reason that we felt this was really important is if you look at this graph here, you can see that eating a plant-based diet is one of the one of the, the top you know six things that you can do. You can do to make a to reduce your contribution to climate change and um, so we felt it was really important to be responsible and think about how how might we be able to help make that happen um, so one of the things that we were very lucky to have access to was the world resources institute has created an amazing evidence-based playbook that has looked at all sorts of behavioral nudges um, they had 57 impactful nudges and, but what they did is they actually broke it down and narrowed it down to 23 nudges across different areas um, that are highly impactful and they're also easy or easy-ish to implement. So we had a look at what those um, interventions could be and um, we then started to look at what interventions did we already have in place because, you know, before we saw this book, we actually had started on the journey anyway. And what we found is that we already had a number of um, of um, interventions that we had put in place. So for example, we no longer have any lamb or beef dishes on our menu, which are the highest impact um, meats that you can have um, from a sustainability perspective. Um, and we've reduced the amount of meat in dishes. We've got vegan, new vegan menu. Um, we're actually trying to um, in, embed 
plant-based dishes within our main menu rather than making them look special and vegan and hippie and all of that sort of thing um, and using posters and social media. But now what we're doing and what we've started doing the last few weeks um, is to actually think about some ongoing interventions, which are things like placing, um, putting, you know, we talked about the Google and the water example before. Um, so what we're looking at is with our grab and go vegan sandwiches or plant-based sandwiches, putting those in a good, a prominent place and using some really positive language to encourage people to, to pick them. Um, we're also um, creating staff scripts where um, front of house staff will actually share the positive benefits of the deliciousness of plant-based foods without trying to guilt anybody out or make anybody feel that they need to, you know, definitely make the choice, but it's about encouraging rather than requiring or making people feel guilty. And another thing that we're doing is we're actually changing our menu a little bit to include some information about how you could potentially help the planet. And this nudge is particularly important because there's this whole idea of this hot, cold empathy gap. So first of all, people might not know, um, some people might not know that the food you eat can make a difference on your impact on the planet. But the second thing is, even if you do know that, and even if you're a really committed, you know, greenie or somebody who cares about climate action, it's very easy when you actually get into um, a cafe to make a, a choice, of a meal choice that um, is the thing that you're going to enjoy the most because you, um, the whole idea of ego depletion that we talked about before, people actually um, lose the ability to start to think about logically and they're more likely to make choices that are not their, their emotional needs driven rather than logic driven. So we are creating an insert into our menus. Um, of course, with everything happening at the moment, we've actually sort of, it's things that we're sort of putting a bit of a pause on this, but we're still looking at ways that we can introduce this um, over the upcoming months. Um, so that there are our um, case studies. And so what are some key takeaways for us? Uh, oh, like trying to merge human-centered design and behavioral design throughout different projects in different ways. Um, we've learned that you really can merge human-centered design, nudges and tiny habits in complementary ways and actually quite different ways depending on what your ultimate goal is and what you're trying to do. Um, and one of the reasons why there's such a nice combination um, is because experimentation is the gold standard, it's at the heart of both methods. It's all about experimenting, trying, um, refining, retesting. Um, until you achieve your, your, your goal and until you help your customers achieve their goal. Um, and we've only just begun, so, so stay tuned. Uh, we're going to be uh, merging those approaches um, in our future projects. Um, and like as Fiona said, the uh, nudges at, at Street are continuous and continuously updated. Um, so keep in touch with us if you're yeah. keen to learn what happens next. Yeah, and we're keen to share the good, the bad and the ugly, not just the success stories, but things when they go wrong and how we address them. Yeah. Cheers, thank you. Thank you very much. That was wonderful. Um, we have uh, a couple of questions that have come through. The first one, I think, um, is, is there a, a, a list or a site or a resource that you'd recommend with all of those cognitive biases? Um, like, where did you get that list in order to make up those flashcards? Mm. <laughs> so um, there, there have been a lot of attempts at uh, capturing all of them. So that, um, if I may come back to the slide, um, that cognitive bias codex that we shared at the beginning, I'm sorry for the woo, um, 
uh, this one. Um, so Buster Benson has attempted to do that, and this codex tries to capture all of them and categorize them mm -hmm. um, so that they're a bit easier to digest. Um, there's also a really awesome, um, it's not an app, it's more like a widget that I love. It's called um, Pocket Biases. Um, and it's an app that um, has, gives you a daily bias each day, which is great. Um, I don't think you can see that. Um, and it has a list of all of them, and it also attempts to categorize them so they're a little bit easier to digest. We, we gamified it internally. We'd actually play around with checking whether people would look at their daily bias. It was a bit of fun as well. Um, and, and there are some sites like Bridgeable. Um, they have lovely cards as well. But um, yeah, there's a, a range of different sites, and we'd be really happy to share um, maybe we can add that to the end of our slides and resources. Mm. I know um, Stephen Anderson created uh, a nice set of cards, the mental notes that he released uh, probably six or seven years ago now, but that's, a, that's one that we, um, we have at the studio which gets a lot of use. Um, Mitali asked the question, um, do you need to spend time and memorise these biases? Like, how do you... How do you learn them by heart, or how do you speed up that process? So our deck, actually, we, we've actually narrowed it down to about 42 biases, and we've sort of we did a bit of a, a bit of a review of the different. Um, if you look at different organisations that use behavioural biases, um, people tend to just simplify it down. Also, Buster Benson actually has um, a bit of a, a cheat sheet, which actually narrows it down to the four different areas you can see on this slide as well. What should mm. we remember? need to act fast, not enough meaning, et cetera. Um, and that's a good way of, you know, so no, you don't need to remember them all. And the cards are really great because if you narrow it down to the most common ones, you know, you can just flip through and look at them. Um, but we actually do try internally to just gamify it a little bit so that we can start to remember them. And uh, like, just personally, I, there's no way I remember all of them. And I also struggle with rem remembering names of things. I'm usually like, it's that bias, but I don't know what's the name. So uh, what when I have like a synthesis wall with themes, what I do is I pick those cards up and I quickly look through them to see, okay, what could be at play here? Um, just to just to refresh my memory, so. And Alison asked the question whether or not you use a specific toolkit to determine different HCD and BD recipes for research approaches. So I think, uh, yeah, I can answer that if you like. So we in, internally at MAKE, we have a BE team. Kasha and I are part of that BE team and we're progressively creating a toolkit. Um, so at the moment, it's a little bit on the bespoke side, but we have a, have a bit of a toolkit going on now where we can actually start to think about different kinds of projects and how we would approach them. But it is a bit of trial and error as well at the moment. Um, I don't know if you want to add anything, Kasha. Yeah, I think that, um, Ultimately, it depends on um, on that on the goal of your project and uh, what makes most sense. Uh, it might be that as a team we decide that you know oh in this specific instance it probably you know it's we should probably stick just with humans in design approach. So it's it's more um, more of a team conversation. And what we try to do is we have run like internal training sessions so that everyone's aware of what's out there and they can reach for our help um, when it's time for them to reach for inspiration. That's great. Uh, one last question from Emma. Um, she's asking whether or not the case studies that you've shown are all paid projects or do you also volunteer? Uh, so the, the projects that we have shared 
um, at the, the first three. Um, they're all projects that uh, have been uh, client projects that make, so yes, paid projects, but there is a lot of volunteering opportunities at Street, but I might do Yeah, yeah. So I guess as a, I'm an employee of Street, so the work that I'm doing at Street is not voluntary. It's like part of, like, you know, it's part of working internally at the company. But we also do, um, we have um, this whole concept of bite-sized activism where we are really keen to um, invite people who might be interested in getting involved in some of the things that we're doing um, with skilled volunteering where they can take part in different um, activities that we're doing. Great. Thank you both so much for that talk. That was excellent.